I was promised you that's not a virus. Okay. <laughs> oh. So last time you all got together, I was actually really lucky. I was blessed to be in Israel. Uh, anybody go on a trip? Um, it was amazing. Uh, got lots of pictures and stuff. Um, the most important one I just wanted to share with you is, is that. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, that's me on a tank. You don't think it's cool? All right. I look better than this guy, though, right? <laughs> okay. Who is that guy, the millennial, say? All right. So today we're going to be looking, we're going to be starting in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to look at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, Nehemiah's prayer. Um, and, and what we're going to see right at the outset through this prayer is the kind of man, the type of man that God elects to further his plan. So if we've known anything about what God has done through people we've cho- he's chosen, we know from the outset that he doesn't look necessarily at raw intellect or he doesn't look at their physical prowess or their education or their EQ or even maybe necessarily their leadership qualities. He looks at the heart. First Samuel 16.7 tells us that. Um, and we're going to see today that this is true with respect to Nehemiah. Exemplified through the one thing that Nehemiah does first. He prays, and it's how he prays that we're going to look at and, and see that exemplified. But before we do that, um, I just thought I'd give a real quick background leading us up to the book. Um, so here is just a quick chart. Uh, Northern, in- Northern Kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians in 7 BC, and the people are taken away, captives by the Assyrians and, and absorbed into the Assyrian culture. The Southern Kingdom of Judah then falls. In the, to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., however, the people in the southern kingdom, they remain intact in Babylon, okay? They're not necessarily um, as absorbed. Um, and so, such that after the is broken by the Medes and the Persians around 539 B.C., they're in this position of being able to return to Judah, which we know is what happened through our lengthy study of Ezra. In 538 B.C., Zerubbabel leads the first group to return. 515 B.C., these returnees succeed in rebuilding the temple. 558 B.C., and I'm just going through quickly, um, the second group of Jews returned led by Ezra. And led, Ezra, as we know, leads most of them out of this state of moral degradation that they're in. Um, but while the temple's being built, work on the walls and the, uh, and the rest of the city is stopped uh, by opponents who, who Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai... Um, they, they, they stop, they warn of a rebellion if Jerusalem is built, and they get Artaxerxes, the king, to issue this order. Okay? And this is where Nehemiah comes in, in 444 B.C. I don't think this is a spoiler alert. He actually does rebuild the walls. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, but that's kind of where we're coming in here. And, and, and the Bible, most, we don't know a lot about Nehemiah. Uh, we don't know much about who he is, his childhood or his youth, except that possibly we know his father's name was Hakaliah, and he had a brother named Hanani. And possibly his great-grandparents were taken into captivity um, when the Jerusalems uh, fell to the Babylonians. Uh, probably born in Persia sometime around when Zerubbabel's ministry is happening in, in Jerusalem. So... Um, the other thing we do know about Nehemiah, as we're going to talk a little bit about today, is that he was a person of prominence in this pagan environment. He rose up to be the cupbearer to the king, um, and that's important, but we'll talk about later. But it also shows you that he was a man who was wise, he was discreet, 
he was probably consistently honor, uh, honest and trustworthy. That's important um, because Artaxerxes isn't going to put just any old guy in that position. Okay. All right, so let's, um, uh, let's go to, to, to today's lesson. It begins with prayer, so we should do the same thing. Oh, Jesus, we, uh, we come to you today, um, hopefully with humble hearts and hopefully with uh, ears and hearts and minds open to hear from you and your spirit. So, Lord, we ask that your spirit would come dwell among us and speak through us, not only through uh, what we share from uh, going through this lesson this morning, but also how we share at the, these tables. Lord, let your spirit be with us to guide us, to bless us with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Okay, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now, the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. I heard these words, I sat down. And wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The first thing we want to note here about Nehemiah is what? He sat down and wept and mourned for days. God was after, created a broken heart. See, God chooses those who experience godly despair for what's not right. And right from the start, we see this with Nehemiah. He's got a deep, deep despair. Um, so let me ask you, what challenges in your life, or it, and maybe excluding those involving your family, because we all have deep despair and deep feelings about our family, but, but in our world, what leads you to lament like this? What issues or problems move you so deeply that they affect your very emotional stability? Nehemiah, he wasn't chosen here just to do a job. He was chosen to a personal mission. And it isn't just something that stirred his interest. It wasn't just something that was cool for him to do, obviously. It stirred the very depth of his soul. So the first thing we can take away from this, this prayer and from Nehemiah is, is, is to search at what it is that God is using to stir. Okay, And I want to actually very quickly take notice of the thing that Nehemiah specifically mourned for, because, or one of the things, namely Jerusalem. Because we should mourn for that too. We should mourn for the holy city, because it, it's the ultimate place of consequence for all humanity. I mean, I, being blessed to have spent six, six days there, I, I perspective. If, if you have not been, you need to go some point on your Christian journey. I'm just going to say that. But, but really, it, it, it's, it's this ultimate place of consequence. And um, the Temple Mount right now, I mean, I, I was going to put a picture in here, but I didn't. Uh, you know, you go up there, and the Dome of the Rock is right on top of it, okay? I mean, Jerusalem has, has you know, interlopers ever since, I mean, all the time. And, um, and, and there's the Temple of God. It's been burned. It's, it, it, it's burned to the ground. It's buried and, you know, underground. And it's moving to see that. Um, 
So we want to pray for Jerusalem even today. Uh, Indeed, Jesus wept for Jerusalem. Luke 19, 41 through 40, when he approached, says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things that which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you, level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not in you one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Again, Luke 19, 41 through 44. That's all happened. Now, we know Jesus will return. We know he will make things right, and he will return where? He will return to Jerusalem. He'll return, as Zechariah 14.4 um, tells us, he will come down on top of Mount of Olives. But till that time, we mourn for Jerusalem. All right, so to recap, the first thing we see in Nehemiah, though, is, is a man who's moved by this deep, soul-stirring need. And next, I want, we're going to see a man who understands the only truly viable response to that need. I said, beseech you, O Lord, I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness of those who love him and keep his commandments. Here Nehemiah begins his his prayer, and the first thing he does in response to realizing his compelling need is this prayer, right? He He doesn't go, you know, when we see a need and all of a sudden we want to fix it, what do we do? I mean... Where do we go? We go start a GoFundMe page or, 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 you know, I mean, he doesn't go looking on YouTube for videos or looking for, you know, like, I don't know, wall building for dummies or something. He goes straight to the source of the solution. He prays. And in doing so, and in the words of the prayer himself, he acknowledges that God is the solution, the option to this challenge that he and his people uh, face. So how is God the answer? Well, first... We see he has the power. God of heaven is this term. It's employed oftentimes in the Old Testament, and it's a reference to, to, to the one God of heaven. The God of heaven is the one God over all things. He says the great, in, in Hebrew it's Gadol, which is Nora, um, God, in reference to this almighty power that God has that should be feared and revered over all things. So the first thing we know is that he, he, he's all-powerful. No portion or force is going to stand against our God. We have to remember that. Second, he's faithful. He keeps his covenant. He preserves his promise. And third, the word loving kindness, chesed, it speaks of the steadfast love that God has for his people and for you and for me. So Nehemiah, in beseeching God here, is acknowledging his starting point. And this, that is this, that God doesn't need Nehemiah to build a wall. Nehemiah had to build a wall. So when you and I set out to tackle a challenge, we have to ask ourselves, where's the first place we turn? Right? Who's the first place we turn? And when we do, or when we're looking at like ministry or mission, you know, in ministry, it's, it's, it's easy to get tripped up on this. If we have in mind that we're doing it for God, maybe we've got it backwards. We've got to remember that God's doing it for us. God's the one who matters. God's the one with the power. God's the one who gets the glory. And Nehemiah here uh, reflects that. So the second thing we see in Nehemiah's prayer is that he knows where his hope lies. He knows where to go for his solution. The question now is, how does he know what to solve? And the third thing we're going to see is that a man, Nehemiah is a man who identifies the real problem that needs addressing. Okay, He's, he, he's, he's a man who, who identifies the real problem 
that needs addressing. He says here uh, to the Lord, Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, (coughs) which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you aren't faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. All right. Who in here is familiar with the term root cause analysis? Everybody, right? Okay, good. Well, if you're not, what does it mean? Let's take an example. You, the root cause, maybe you got a stain on your shirt this morning. Okay? I'm going to tell you that coffee is not the root cause of the stain. It's not the lid that you put on incorrectly. It's not the guy who slapped you on the arm while you were holding it. The root cause of the stain is your need for coffee in the first place. <laughs> I know, that's too convicting. I'm sorry. But you get the point. You get the point, right? Confuse um, the result for the cause, or even the catalyst for the actual cause, the root cause. We need to get to the root of the issues that we face in our lives, just as Nehemiah did. And notice here, he goes straight to the root cause. It's not enemies, it's not external, uh, external threats. What is it? it? He knows this is not a circumstantial issue, it's, it's a heart issue. Um, and if, if we believe God can make all things right, we need to explore the reasons why he may not be sometimes. We can't um, really problems before really we search ourselves. So um, a note here that Nehemiah never mentions those who oppose the Jews in his their persona non grata here. He knows what God can do. He knows God has an answer to that. The problem, he knows, lies in the state of the relationship between his creator and his creator's people. And that's what he heads to he pinpoints. Notice this too, Nehemiah himself owns that root cause. He's part of, he puts himself in the middle of it. This is huge, okay, because we know he's likely a very righteous man, but he joins himself to the sin of his people. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, when the body that we're part of, okay, the larger body that we're part of is falling short of the glory of God, or even worse, brings shame possibly to the glory of God, ask ourselves, where are we standing with respect to that? Do we set ourselves apart from it? Then are we like the Pharisee next to the, 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 the beggar in the temple? You know, saying, well, it's not me. Um, or do we stand in the fire and say, yes, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. Pray God that way. We need to mourn and confess on behalf of our brothers and sisters and those we love in the body who are wandering. Not shun them. We need to own that sin, not try to set ourselves apart from it. Now, I'm not saying we don't speak truth into it. Absolutely, we must. This is one of those areas me deeply. Uh, but before God, we also need to pray and, and be repentant for all. Um, I think only if we do this, we approach God with a heart that repents to the full extent of what he seeks from us and from his church. Um, so um, h- how do I know this? I have a savior, and I just need to consider his example, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But we see that Nehemiah not only sees, he owns the root cause, uh, the real cause of Jerusalem's state. 
And first, uh, fourth, we want to look at how he uh, draws upon God's promise. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. So what does Nehemiah do next? <clears throat> Excuse me. He remembers God's faithfulness. We can't forget God's faithfulness in all of this. See, in the end, it's, it's not really about rebuilding. Indeed, if we go there today, the wall's, the wall's been torn down. It didn't, it didn't really work. It didn't keep out the Romans. It didn't keep out the Ottomans. Um, it's been overrun. The city's been burned to the ground since then. I'm not sure Jerusalem's walls are really the answer here. They're a symbol of the brokenness of a world that awaits God's faithful return. But I's prayer is about that faithful return. It's about the faith of a God who will restore everything, the God who will ultimately rebuild the ultimate wall. Um, like if, we, if we understand this part of, of God's promise, we're going to understand this in a new way, I think. Uh, but what of God's faithfulness is, is Nehemiah drawing on? They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Again, Nehemiah's faith is not just uh, or even in protection from external forces. It's in the promise of an external deliverance from an internal sin. It reminds God that he and his brethren are still God's people. Despite their failures, they're not outside of God's will. That's amazing. That's the depth of God's love for us. There's a sad pointed example of the, um, what it looks like when, when somebody perceives themselves uh, as being beyond God's love, being beyond God's uh, And that's Saul. See, Saul believed that he lost his right to petition God for help due to his disobedience with respect to the Amalekites. This is in, in 1 Samuel 15. He finds himself, and we were there at the Valley of Elah, he finds himself facing the Philistines, overwhelmed, uh, and having to rely entirely on his own inadequate power. He believed he forsook the right to ask for grace. That's what I think. Most of us remember the story about David saving the day against Goliath. But before God delivered the Philistines into David's hand, Saul found himself in this no-win situation, believing that God would never deliver his unfaithfulness. And that was all up to him. Now, I want to ask you, some of you may believe, like Saul, that because of your past disobedience, because of your past sins, because of something else that you struggled with, you forfeited your right to call on God. Stop. That's a lie from Satan. Stop, please, if you're there. Romans 8, 38 through 9 tells us that absolutely nothing is able to separate us from the love of God. So let's take Nehemiah's example. We need to believe in the chesed. We need to believe in the loving kindness and grace of God rather than living in that lie. And we see uh, Nehemiah, so we see Nehemiah draws upon God's faithfulness, faithfulness excuse me, of covenant and God's willingness to honor his promises to his people despite their faithfulness. Now I want you to see that Nehemiah knows precisely what to ask for. Okay, he says, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servant, servants uh, who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today. Grant him compassion before this man. The final, here we see that he, he, Nehemiah is asking for a specific thing. He's asking for God's favor before Artaxerxes. Um, 
because he knows that's the one thing, the one thing only God can take care of. Okay? He, sees, he sees his role. He sees the role of his people in the rebuilding of the wall. He doesn't ask God, just raise up the wall. He goes to God and says, this, this one thing I cannot do because what does it involve? It involves taking the most powerful guy in the kingdom and asking him, hey, you know that order that you created? I want you to reverse it. Okay? I don't know if you all have any scary bosses out there, okay? but this would have been the ultimate in that situation. Um, so he knows exactly what to ask God for, and we need to actually, you know, when we're facing situations in our, our lives, we need to be able to think and discern and pray to God and know that he will give us the answers, um, but we want to think about what, what we really need. Okay, so he asks him to intervene, and again, spoiler alert, he does. God does. Um, oh, actually, let me go back to that. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king, and, and we're going to close with this. We finally see from the account that God uses men that he puts in position. It was no coincidence that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, that he would be a man with an audience and an influence before and over the very person who needed to act to get accomplish the job. Um, it's not happenstance. This is the mark of God. I submit to you that everybody in this room has been put in a position by God for a purpose. And I want you to explore what that might be. So to recap, who was Nehemiah? Let's conclude by that he was someone most, or he was just like someone most, or hopefully all of us already know. Okay? First, he was a man stirred by deep, a deep, compelling empathy and a sense of compassion. So deep he could not help but act. We know this sense of compassion. Necessarily because we have it, but because we have experienced it. Jesus had that sense of compassion for you and me when he wept for his people. He cared for their needs, he searched for them, he fed them, and he served them. We know Nehemiah was a man who knew where his hope comes from. He knew who to turn to and how to. He knew to pray to God again, just like our Savior. Jesus was in constant prayer to the Father. You know, in choosing the disciples in Luke 6, 6, 12, it tells us that he spent the entire night in prayer. When is the last time you spent the entire night in prayer? Nehemiah owned the sins of the people. Indeed, joining in the rebellion, even though he was a righteous man, and the parallels here are obvious, Jesus, sinless, took our entire sin, took our sin entirely upon himself. We owe all, that, we owe all the blame for that, and we share in none of the wrath. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become right, the righteousness of God in him. In 5.21. And finally, Nehemiah remembered God's faithfulness and he knew just what to ask for, as it was with Jesus. Remember the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. In this agonizing moment, he says, remove this cup from me. Not what I will but what? You know it, but you, you will. But what you will. Jesus, in his incarnation, always knew specifically what to ask for, and that was that God's will be done. And he asked for it, knowing it was the only answer, even though it was the hardest answer he probably ever had to accept. Finally, we know Nehemiah's position matter, that God has a purpose where he puts you. Your position in Christ 
is what matters most. See, from there, you're a light wherever he places you. But we don't want to lose sight of something. We don't want to lose sight of the reason for that hope, for our life, for even the testimonies that we have. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. That was his position. For you, for me, the king was a cupbearer to us. That's our position. God didn't take that cup from Jesus. We have life because of that decision. And we should live our lives abundantly. Like Nehemiah, in prayer, asking God, what, Lord, are you calling for me to do? How are you stirring my heart? I'm going to pray for us, and then, we're going to, and then you get to some of these discussion questions.